0: Well, this morning, we're in a different place than we've been uh, the last four weeks. We'll be in Mark chapter 14 today. Gethsemane is what uh, I'm calling this, because that's, that's literally what we're going to look at here. But um, as we uh, have already mentioned in our worship, the triumphal entry of Christ on that Palm Sunday, so maybe about 27 or so A.D., somewhere in there, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, Hosanna, save now. Very interesting, um, those events that led up to that. And what I want to do for just a couple of minutes before we get into our text is just to take us back a little bit because we're going to talk a lot about the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, God, second person of the deity lost none of his attributes of God, fully God, always has been, always will be, never less than, fully God. And yet, man, 100% man, you cut him, he bleeds. He had calluses on his hand as a carpenter and a stonemason. And so that's, that's who Jesus Christ was, fully God, fully man. So we'll talk about the God-man, that's who we mean. God and man in one. Jesus Christ, the God-man. But I wanted to take us back because the Jesus Christ came to this earth for one express purpose. And next Friday, we're going to talk about as churches, as, as your Good Friday service, uh, He came to die. That was His purpose in being born with The resurrection then, a week from now, as we gather as churches to worship and celebrate the resurrection. But I want us to really focus on the singular purpose of Jesus Christ. To be born, to live a sinless life, keep every jot and tittle of the law, and fully righteous, and then killed as a sacrifice for our sin the purpose for he was born we even sing about it at Christmas time that old song ring the bells there's a lyric in there born to die that man might live and that's literally why Christ was born and so I want to take us back so if we go back uh, to Luke chapter 2 let me let me read this for you Lord this is Simeon you remember his parents they brought him in the infant Christ He's there out of uh, uh, to keep the rituals of the law, the dedication of the child. But it's interesting, Simeon, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that if you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for... Uh, for glory to your people Israel. Your, my eyes have seen your salvation. And you see the old prophet holding the Christ child, maybe holding him up to the Lord. And Lord, now your servant can depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. It's as if he sees across the years and knows what's coming. This is God's lamb to be sacrificed. The old prophet sees that. And it, the text says his parents marveled at what was being said about him. And then the text jumps ahead there in Luke, 12 years, and you remember the, the, the family went uh, up to celebrate uh, the Passover to Jerusalem, and probably traveling in an entourage with family and friends, and they're all traveling as a group. They go up to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover, and when it's time to go home, they're all going along the road, and picture the men and the women, they're all just talking as they go, the kids are playing, and just boys are being boys, and girls being girls, and They're on their way and everybody's watching each other's kids and they get to the first night. Has anybody seen Jesus? Well, I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was over with the boys. Where's Jesus? So his mom and dad make a full day journey back to Jerusalem and look and look and look. And finally they find him in the temple. Luke 2, 48-49, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated his soul? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Yeah, you know, like where did that kid go? (laughs) You know, and they're wondering. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You have a 12-year-old boy who already is on his mission. He knows the purpose of his mission in life, is to be the sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And he's already focused on that mission. And if nobody else, Jesus is the one person when he went into the temple, he was home. That's his house. Dad's house, Yahweh. And and if the presence of God were still there, not in Herod's temple, but in the past, in Herod's temple, uh, the Spirit was not there the same as in the old temple where just on the other side of that curtain was the manifestation of God's immediate presence. But literally when Jesus came in the house, God's in the room. And he's there like never before. the text goes on and says he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And he disappears from the record now. For maybe, remember he's 12 years old and maybe another 18 years he disappears. No records of what happened during that time. Other than he was submissive to that he probably learned his father's trade. He was taught uh, uh, from the rabbis and so he's learning the scripture and he's learning his father's trade. And he's, learning, uh, he's leading a sinless life and he's aimed for a cross. And it's very interesting Later in Luke uh, chapter 9, we fast forward again then because uh, probably, as I said, maybe about A.D. 27 or so, Jesus' public ministry began. And so he starts to recruit his disciples, the ones who would become apostles. And he's starting to preach and teach. And then in chapter 9, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is aiming now to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, he'll be in and out of Jerusalem several times, even in this final week of the Passion Week, the triumphal entry, but he goes out of the city at night, and he comes back in. He's in and out of the city. But there in chapter 9, when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, everything he did from there on was aimed for a cross because he's going to die. He's going to pay the penalty for the sins of men and women. It's interesting in John's account, um, he, uh, starting in chapter 13, the, the, the upper room discourse, they call it, and he's with his men, and uh, they're doing that uh, Passover meal together, and uh, they're, uh, uh, Jesus is teaching, he's washed the disciples' feet. He's already uh, showed them who the betrayer would be, even though none of the guys got it. <laughs> Ask him who it was, Peter said. And he hands the morsel to to, uh, Judas and it seems like nobody noticed. But Judas goes out to betray him and it's interesting, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 14 in John, Jesus says, get up from here. So they're, they're, they're in the upper room and at the end of chapter 14, get up from here. And then... They're on their way walking, and you can see them. They step out of the house. Maybe uh, they're in an upper room, so the stairs were probably outside. They come down the stairs, and as they walk across the courtyard, there's the vine, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And Jesus continues to teach. They're headed over across the Kidron Valley to Gethsemane. And all the way from, from there, he continues to teach and to instruct and to love his men. Somewhere along the way, he stops, and he kneels down, and he prays that, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, I've kept all of those that you have give, given me. Keep them in your grace. And he prays for us. I pray not just for them, but for those who will believe on me through their word in John 17, that great prayer, on the way to the garden. And they make the journey across... Kidron Valley and they cross the stream and the, there's a garden there. Now we don't know, often these uh, gardens, olive groves. This, this one, uh, we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, olive press. Place of the olive press. So probably it was an olive grove. Often there would be a wall. Uh, usually then a door or a gate with even a key. Very possibly there was some benefactor that Let Jesus use that space when he was in uh, Jerusalem. We know he used it often because John records there in chapter 18 of his gospel, verse 2, that uh, the reason he knew where to go and get Jesus arrested is because Jesus and his men often went there. So that's where he went first. He went to the garden. So they used it often. And it's very interesting now, as we go through this uh, text, starting in verse 32, I'm going to go just a couple verses at a time in what I read, okay? And then we'll talk about it, and we'll just work our way through toward verse 42. And so uh, in Mark, then, chapter uh, 14, starting in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed, and troubled. He went to a place called Gethsemane. Now remember, as far as we know, there were eleven disciples with Jesus. Remember there are twelve, but one of them's on the road to betray him. Uh, to go to the Jewish officials. There was uh, 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 temple police probably involved. It seems like the Roman cohort was a part of it because the translation uh, there is uh, where sometimes it will be translated like military unit or whatever. It is actually that word for cohort, which is a Roman formation of men. Um, and, and you can believe that because uh, when they go to arrest him they don't want any sort of civil unrest so a massive show of force we won't have any civil unrest when they arrest Jesus and so very, very possibly that was the case and so they go to this place called Gethsemane and he says to the eight sit here and pray they come in the gate over there and as they get inside the gate he says sit here and pray then he takes along with him Peter, James, and John. And he takes them farther in as, uh, as the text goes on. He took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Peter, James, and John. What's so special about Peter, James, and John? Well, they are uh, three that uh, Jesus drew in intimately Closely. He had his 12 men and he walked close with, with them. Even with Judas. Remember, he watched Judas's feet. He was one of his disciples that Jesus himself had recruited. He was one of the 12. But these three he drew in closer. More intimately, we know that John, in his gospel, calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. So he knew there was a unique relationship there. And if we look at it closely... Um, as we uh, take a look at these three men, there's uh, two instances where, other than this where Jesus had just Peter, James, and John go with him. And so the first one, Mark 5.37, the raising of the daughter of Jairus, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And so that great rising, and can you imagine what these three men, they go, remember, she's not dead. She's only sleeping and they laugh him to scorn and all the rest. These three men are with him when he's there and says, Arise, and this, this dead person comes to life. Can you imagine the impact on these three? Yeah, they saw Lazarus come out of the grave. They're standing there when this, when this girl is brought to life. However that worked. Probably just sat up and said that was a good sleep. <laughs> you know, but the Lord, these three men were there. Then there's the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9.2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led him up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. What was that like to see the glory, uh, uh, some glimpse of the glory of God, the bright, white hot light of the presence of God? And then. Moses and Elijah are there talking to Jesus. What was that like? And then there's a voice out of the cloud. They heard the voice of God. No one has heard that hardly at all since way back there at the giving of the law. I mean, it's rare. And they're there with Jesus and they're, the, the impact in these three men's lives. Now you remember Peter, bold, self-assured, kind of rambunctious, right? Right? Well we get all the way to the resurrection we you, you can almost see him pushing John out of the way as he charges into the tomb. I mean, you know, ready shoot aim that's peter and and he's just on it, but he's a man who needs to be broke down because of his Uh, his robust nature and his uh, desire to serve and yet at the same time to get things backward and he's bold and he's self-assured and there in verse 29 in our text if you back up to verse 29 Jesus had just told him that he was going to die and uh, in the starting in 27 Jesus said to them you'll all fall away for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In verse Peter in uh, verse 29 said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I'm not going to Jesus. I'm with you. You can depend on me. He's bold, self-assured. Jesus needs to uh, break him down so that he understands that he can't do this in himself. And then James and John, the sons of thunder in Mark 3.17, I love these guys. So there's an account in uh, Luke in chapter 9. Jesus is on his way to visit Jerusalem. and He's got to go through Samaria. So he sends a couple people ahead to a village in Samaria to make preparations for him. And they, it's, the text says they wouldn't have him because he was headed to Jerusalem. Don't, don't even stop here. So here's Peter, James, and John's way of handling that, Lord. Do you want us to call fire from heaven to consume them? (laughs) That's that's these two sons of thunder. Do you want us to call fire from heaven and and consume them? Then, in Luke 10.37, they come to Jesus and they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Well, but, you know, when you're talking about the king, this person on the right, he's number one in the kingdom next to you. This person on the left isn't far behind. They're saying, give us the highest place of honor and power in the kingdom. A little bit of arrogance, (laughs) pride, and they need to be broken down. They need to be remade. And Jesus has a unique and special mission for these three men. Now think about this. What about Peter? After his great fall there, uh, after, after in verse 31... Up here it said, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And look at the rest of the verse, and they all said the same thing. All the disciples, yeah, what Peter said, Lord, we're with you and we know. Peter, in just a few hours, remember this is Thursday night. In just a few hours, Peter is going to deny his Lord with a curse. Jesus knows what's in a man. And Jesus is going to break him down. But look at what the Lord did through Peter. After he remade Peter and after the resurrection, he preaches a sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved. Peter opens the gospel to the Jews, and then later the Lord uses Peter to open the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was used magnificently by the Lord, but first he had to break him down, break his spirit, and help him to understand where his true power and authority came from, and it's not from himself. And the Lord used him magnificently. Then there was James, the son of thunder. After the resurrection and the gospel is being preached and Herod decides to start persecuting the church, he arrests James and takes his head off has him executed. James becomes the first martyr of the apostles. A high and lofty position of James and in his faithfulness, the Lord allowed him that gift of martyrdom on his behalf. The Lord had to break him down and prepare him for that role. And then there's John, which we've talked about quite a bit here over the last month. John, the uh, apostle of love who was a son of thunder and wanted to call down fire and consume him. And when we, what we have looked at over the last uh, month, the, the apostle of love, to love what the Lord your God and to love one another. And he's the last of the apostles. And he's watched them all die. He's watched his church suffer. And you see him as, as, as an older man writing the, res, the Revelation and he longs for heaven. Lord, take me now. And he's just longing for heaven. And the Lord used all three of these men greatly. He brought them inside intimately. They're going to see in the garden things that nobody has seen. When the God man is on his knees pleading for relief. And they're there. And it's a powerful, powerful scene. And our verse there in 33 goes on. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Can you guys? So you picture he left the eight over there. They walked in a ways. And he says, Guys, can you wait right here and just watch with me? And he goes a little beyond them and he kneels down to pray hoping that these men would be with him in that and helping to shoulder the grief that he was going through these verses I'm calling together but alone. They're together. Jesus brought his men in intimately and close, but Jesus Christ is all alone. And we find that out because these guys are going to go to sleep. And he's all alone. And he says, I'm I'm." sorrowful, very sorrowful, even to death. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And even now in the garden, the weight, the coming weight of my sin is coming on his shoulders. And there's death to pay. And there's damnation to pay, and he's going to pay it. And the the realization, remember this is only hours away now. In just a handful of hours, he's going to be in front of Pilate. And a few hours more, he's going to be brutally killed and condemned by the Father. The iniquity of, of, of us all, the focus of liability or guilt, my liability, my guilt is laid on him. And he's starting to carry or to feel the weight of it. In 53:10, Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That word crush, beating to pieces, crush, destroy. The Lord was pleased to beat him to pieces. And the beating is starting. He's starting to feel the weight of that. And he's in the garden and he's all alone. There's nobody who can carry that weight with him. He has to carry it himself. He's in extreme agony of soul, almost unto death. As we move to verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, and yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. This is this is afflicted now. He's afflicted. He's got. He's starting to feel the weight of the of sin. Uh, he's a man. The torture that he is going to face is beyond anything we can imagine. The Romans were expert at, at exacting pain. That's what's coming, and he's he knows that. And so there's that 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 bodily dread of that torture but even more is the weight of the suffering for the sin of mankind that's coming upon him and he's feeling it and he goes and he falls on the ground and it's very interesting Luke records in chapter 22 there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground the God man he's in extreme Agony. And picture the this, this phenomenon. And it has been seen. The physicians, the doctors, they call it hematidrosis. Where the, the, the blood vessels burst and the blood comes out through the pores, through the skin. Picture blood running down his face and his arms mixed with sweat. And they say that most people that experience, it's extreme duress and stress that brings it on. And most people die as a result. And the Lord God sends an angel from heaven to strengthen him because he can't do it alone and the weight of the sin Paul said there in first second corinthians 5:21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of god in him and the sin remember this is the holy sinless son of god never a hint of sin And it's being laid upon him. And the dirt and all of the distress that goes with that. And he's starting to feel it. Then there's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for it. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this is the dread of dreads because the curse is coming. And Father God is going to look at him and damn him. For my sin. And there's dread. There's great fear. Of being accursed. And, and this whole thing of death. What is that about? To die? God is a just judge. And God is angry. With the wicked. Every day. Psalm 711. And that's me. And it's all coming upon him and so he prays there in verse 36 he said Abba father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will he pleads with his father if there's any other way please remove this cup from me the horror in every dimension reminded me when I was thinking through and praying through this stuff, there's a day coming. Revelation nineteen talks about Jesus when he comes back. And he is going to judge the earth. And it mentions in there it said he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And that's where Jesus is at right now. He's in the wine press and he's being stomped. That's what Jesus is doing. And the father says, no. If there's any other way, remove this cup. And the father says, no, you, got it. you have to do this. It's the only way. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Father, if, if I have to do this, I don't want to do it, but help me to do it. So there is a key principle here for us in this. When we hear the, pray, the prayer of Jesus, pleading with the father, if there's any other way, it's, there's a principle for us when we think about prayer. It's not for us or even the Son of God to assume that just because God can answer our prayers a certain way, that He will. It's not for us to assume that just because God can say yes to my prayer, that He will. Even the Son of God got the word no from His Father when He pleaded for relief. There's a corollary truth, though, that goes with this, and it's this. Prayer then becomes not about changing God's mind, but about us aligning ourselves with his will. Prayer is all about, primarily all about, changing our desires and our will to conform with the will of the living God. If God is a God of providence, who providentially orders our steps, ultimately then everything that comes my way is for good. Al and I were talking just briefly about all the tornadoes and the disasters that have happened, horrible and the loss that people have experienced. and You talk about a test of your faith. But people of faith, even in those kind of disasters, we look at it and say, but God is a good God and if he brought this into my life, it is a good thing that he did it as horrible as it is. Because I trust him. It's about me aligning my will, my, my will with his will. What is the will of God for my life? And so, we, we yes, we call each other to pray. And, and we plead with God for resources or relief or whatever our concerns may be. But in that, what we're really saying is, God, have your perfect will in my life, in my family, in my church, in my nation. And help me to be submissive to it and to trust you no matter what. Because whatever you do is best. God never does second best. It's always, always best and even the son of God it's interesting in Hebrews 5 in the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence yeah he was heard the Lord God heard him although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Although he was a son, the living son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That son learned obedience through what he suffered when the father said, no son, you have to do this. And he did it. In the power of the Spirit, as the Lord enabled him, and being made perfect or being made complete, Jesus Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. And now we know He's exalted to the right hand of Father and there's a day coming when every knee will bow on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, He's been exalted to the highest place because He went to the lowest hell to be able to pay the penalty for my sin and for yours. And it all started there in Gethsemane, in the suffering, even in this time as He's right on the threshold of trial, beating, brutality, death. And then those three days in the grave. But next Sunday is coming. And we're going to celebrate a resurrection. Let's go back to our text now. In in, uh, verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping. So we've just seen uh, we've just seen afflicted but alone. Jesus is all alone. It's him and the Lord. It's him and his Father. But now, watch and pray. Look at this in verse 37. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Interesting here. Watch and and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, Peter was completely willing, right? You, again, you go back up and you look at 29 to 31. In his mind, he's willing. Lord, I will die with you. And then he falls asleep when Jesus needs him the most. Just hours later. Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And again He went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer Him. Can you imagine? Jesus comes and shakes you and kind of wakes you up, the three guys. The guys... You fell asleep again, and you look at him, and he's in total stress. There's blood on his face and his arms. He's sweating. And you can just tell he's in a horrible place, and you fell asleep. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Just disbelief, if you will, on the human plane. And three times he finds him sleeping because our flesh is weak. We are weak in the flesh. Jesus' flesh was weak. But he cried out to the Father. And the Father enabled him to do what he had to do as the Lamb of God. And it's an amazing, amazing story. He and so he finds him sleeping. And there's a very key turn that happens here now in Gethsemane. He says, It is enough. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's a turn that happens there. Jesus has gone into the garden with his men. Men, you stay here and you pray. You three on me. Brings them here. You wait for me here. I'm going over a little ways and I'm going to pray. And they all fall asleep on him. And he gets through his prayer. The father has said, no son, you have to do this. Now he says, okay, it's enough. And from this point, where he says it's enough, he takes charge of everything that will happen to him until he gets to the cross and he's hanging there. Everything in the Old Testament that's been predicted is fulfilled. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he dies. That word Tetelestai, it is finished. So from enough till it is finished, he's in charge. He died when he was done. According to the Father's will, it's an amazing and a beautiful, triumphant picture, but I wanted us to see that even Gethsemane, this was not the calm before the storm. The storm is unleashed and it's beating on the Son of God. Now it's going to go from bad to worse. Horror is coming. Tomorrow is coming. Friday, when we uh, remember the crucifixion and death, that's when real brutality is coming upon the body and mind of Christ. But he's suffering even as he's in the garden with his men. So as we think about this uh, I've got some things that we've learned maybe today, or reminded us of at least in regard to this passage, but I, I just wanted to remind, remind us one more time. Remember when we think about Christ, even in Gethsemane, remember He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's a key text. Jesus Christ became sin on my behalf. That's imputation. My sin to Him. His Righteousness to me. I'm made righteous in Christ because He's righteous because the fact is I'm just not. I'm being made righteous. I'm being glorified. I'm not there yet. But I'm made righteous because of Christ and the God-man took our sin on Himself. Then, we're no longer under the curse. When the Father cursed His Son, He cursed my sin. And so I'm no longer under the curse. And so Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus Christ, that's the anathema, the damn you of the Father. He took that for me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. So we've learned some things. Never forget those two truths. Never forget that Christ became sin for me and he took my curse. And I got his holiness and righteousness. And I get to call uh, Yahweh God, Father. Come right into his presence and praise the Lord for it. So we've learned some things. Number one, Jesus suffered beyond our comprehension. We can't begin to uh, understand the suffering Jesus went through. Mental suffering, physical suffering, spiritual torture because of my sin. And he did it for us because he loves us. And he wants us to be with him. He's calling out a people for his name. And he suffered beyond our comprehension. Number two... We've learned that we should pray for deliverance from temptation and testing. Jesus Christ, when this was coming upon him and he's pleading with his Father, if there's any other way, the temptation, the greatest temptation he's ever faced is right there. Yes, he had the temptation when Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple and all this stuff, if you'll just worship me. Tremendous temptation, but right here, the temptation to not follow through. And he did it, and that's for us that we we can and should pray for deliverance from temptation and testing. And number three goes right with it: that our will should be in se- in subjection to God's will regarding the struggles of life, the affairs of life. Our will should be in, su- in subjection to God's will, just as Jesus Christ was in subjection to His Father. There's a lot of mystery in my mind here. Jesus Christ, God, Man. This is the second person of the Trinity who lost none of his attributes, even as he uh, takes on the incarnate nature of a man. Uh, so there's mystery at this point. But there he is. But the God-man lives in subjection to the Father. Utter subjection. That should be you and me. Our will should be in subjection to God's will. And then number four, this one is uh, a reminder for us that natural human weakness can pose great spiritual danger. If we could say that Jesus was ever in danger, it was right here in Gethsemane facing the resolve of, am I going to do it or am I not going to do it? And Jesus Christ said, it's enough. Now we're going to go do this and events started to unfold rapidly because the betrayer is just outside the garden and he's going to come through the gate and Jesus is going to be arrested and it's going to get really, really ugly. When he said, it's enough. And human weakness can pose great spiritual danger, and that's for you and I, our human weakness. And in those times of weakness, just like our Lord, we cry out to the Father that I can't do this. I'm struggling with belief right now. Lord, I'm, I'm, I believe you, but I'm not seeing it. When your home has been blown off the foundation, your neighbors killed, and the whole community is leveled like some of those down there in Indiana and other places. And, and you start to wonder, because of the starkness of life, the human weakness that, Lord, I'm not seeing it, help my unbelief. Natural human weakness can pose great spiritual danger. But aren't we thankful that our Lord, in, in uh, his uh, atonement for us, paved the way so that we can see how it's done. So He paid our penalty for sin, so we can spend eternity with Him. There's there's where He bought us back. There's our propitiation. But He also showed us how to do it. So He didn't die just to be our example, but He was our example. So He is our example. And He showed us how to do it. And we have that example that we can follow. And then the wonderful thing is, is the same Yahweh God that He cried out to, we get to pray to that same God and call Him Father just like Jesus did. Because He brought us into the family if we belong to Christ. We're in the family. Jesus is our brother. And and Yahweh God is our Father. And we're in the family and we can cry out to Him and He hears us when we pray. And He will help us. This Gethsemane, not the calm before the storm, but he's in the midst of the storm as he enters into it. I'm going to close us uh, with prayer here, with the, close the message with prayer. And then when I'm done with that, there's a couple of verses in Jude that I want to read for you, just a closing benediction of the sermon part of our service. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then I'll read those two verses, and then I'm done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what do we say when we contemplate the the torture and the suffering that your Son went through on our behalf? And Lord, as we've looked for uh, uh, the the, the Passion Week and where where the, the people of God are greeting Hosanna and worship and only a few days later are standing in the crowd saying crucify Him. And Lord, the the fickleness of our hearts, the horror that you experienced on our behalf. We just want to worship you today. We we love you. We we know we're weak. Lord, often we fail you. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you that you don't cast us away, but you've, you've laid a hold of those that are yours and you hold on to them forever. Lord, you're our only hope. We just want to say we love you today. Thank you for Passion Week. Thank you for Gethsemane. Thank you for the victory of the Spirit that you resolved that I'm going to do this. And Lord, you did it. You did it for us. We just want to say thank you. We love you. Help us to look more like you as a result of spending time together. In your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, this would be f- from me. Just, uh, this is uh, Jude, verse 24 to 25, but a prayer that I have for all of you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to print you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.